We welcome you again to North Suburban Church. Tim, one of the pastors here. We're glad you're with us, whether you're here in the building or tuning in with us from home or afar. We sang just a moment ago, as Jesus walked, so I shall walk. It's been a good theme song for us in this series in which we're exploring what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus along the way. Let's ask for the Lord's help now as we take another step along that journey. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Who's in? Who's out? We all want to be in. It hurts when we're kicked out. How do you know if you're in or out? If you're out, how do you get in? Is there any way to be permanently in? I was thinking, you know, if they put up a statue of you, then you know you're in for good. You're one of the very small percentage of humans so widely revered that you're memorialized in marble for everyone to see and remember. At least then you can rest easy knowing you're in. That is, at least until we all decide you're not in anymore and we pull your statue down. There's a Christian version of that too, though. As you know, if you're on social media... If you're looking for who was in but is now on their way out, just look for your friend's posts that start with the words, I'm concerned. Just concerned. As the winds of Christian culture change, certain pastors become celebrities. Others who were celebrities get canceled. One group of seminary professors becomes the cool crowd at the seminary, while the professors who used to be revered find their popularity fading. Who's in? Who's out? Who gets to decide? In our scripture text today, Jesus' disciples think they're the gatekeepers of who's in and who's out. As it turns out, they don't quite have it right. Would you turn with me to Mark 9 if you haven't already? Mark chapter 9. As we're tracking along this fall in Mark chapters 8 through 10, it seems lately, the last few weeks, like every passage is another occasion for the disciples to look at each other and say, well, we had that almost entirely wrong. They thought Jesus would be a conquering Messiah. He reveals he's going to be a suffering Messiah. They thought Jesus was going to be a, it was a really great human religious figure, one of the greatest. He reveals he's actually the divine son of God. They thought that with the right technique, they'd be able to access the power of Jesus at will to cast out demons. He shows them that they will be powerless unless they depend on God in prayer. Week after week, we were wrong there, wrong there. Wrong there, too. The thought crossed my mind. Uh, Maybe that's how some of you feel coming to church each Sunday. Like every week, I'm being challenged on something in my life. When's the week when I just get to sit here and be affirmed in what I already thought before I showed up? And I guess that I'd respond like this, thinking back to times in my own life when I've felt that way coming to church. I guess I think when we start feeling affirmed week after week on what we already thought before we showed up, that's actually when we should start to worry. Because this book is living and active. It penetrates to the deepest part of our being, dividing joint from marrow, laying bare all the secrets of our hearts. And as such, it's not really made to leave us intellectually stimulated but spiritually comfortable. 
it's made to do something to us. Something, sometimes that's encouragement, other times it's challenge. So thanks for preparing your hearts this week leading up to this morning for another encouraging and challenging word from Jesus. I preached part of this passage a couple years back uh, in a different series, in a one-off kind of sermon. I sent out that sermon this week, so you can recap if you wanted to. Because that sermon was so recent, we're only going to quickly scan the first eight verses of this passage today, because that includes the portion that's been preached. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the last four verses. Um, so here's our scan of the first eight verses, verses 30 to 37. Ready? So this will be a quick overview. Uh, not a full exposition. Verses 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus is keeping a low profile here because he wants some private teaching time with his disciples. He tells them again that he's going to be killed and then raised from the dead. This is the second time in as many chapters that he's said that. But that destiny is so far outside their conception of what could happen to anyone, let alone the Messiah. They can't grasp it. They couldn't grasp it last chapter either. But they're not even going to ask for clarification this time. You can imagine them maybe whispering to each other, shh. Remember what happened when Peter pushed back on the suffering and death stuff last chapter? Let's not even ask. Hey, Jesus, that's deep. That's deep. Verses 33 to 35. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Remember Jesus, his mind is on his suffering and death. That's what he just got done talking about. But then we see that the disciples, they're not just confused. They are actually on another planet from where Jesus is. The disciples' minds are on, of all things we're thinking about after these last few verses, they're on which of them is the greatest. They've bought into the world's definition of greatness, too, that you're not great unless you're seen to be great, unless you're greater than others. Jesus says here that true greatness is something different. True greatness is attained by being last of all, servant of all. Sure, seek greatness, Jesus says, but seek it in humble service of others. Now he's going to reinforce this point with an illustration. Verses 36 to 37, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In case it wasn't clear that to Jesus the way up is down, he takes a child. Children were lower than low in this day, yet Jesus says, this right here is the sort of person that you are to receive, to welcome in my name. To be sure, receiving them, welcoming them will do nothing for your status. But if you receive or welcome the one who others overlook, you receive and welcome me. And not only that, you receive, you welcome the one who sent me. So zooming out on those first eight verses, verses 30 to 37, here's how we might summarize Jesus' teaching there. Uh, maybe something like this. 
hey, guys, get over the idea that the way of following me is going to result in some sort of conquering triumph. As we walk the way, all of Israel is going to take sides, and many of them will choose to oppose me. So much so that when we reach the end of this road we're walking, I'm going to be killed, Jesus says. That means you won't be great in the world's eyes. You'll only be great to the extent that you humbly serve the Lord and serve each other. Something like that. It's a summary of verses 30 to 38. As we turn our attention to the last four verses of this passage, the four verses we're going to really focus on today, we're going to see that the disciples effectively respond to that message from Jesus something like this. Okay, Jesus. Yeah, humility, service, got it. However, the 12 of us, we're still pretty important, right? Like, people have to go through us if they want to follow you, right? Like, I mean, somebody has to decide who's in, who's out. We're kind of your gatekeepers, no? Here's how the last few verses of the text work themselves out. We've got a report from John, a response from Jesus, and then three reasons Jesus gives for his response. A report, response, reasons. First, the report in verse 38. John says, we tried to stop someone who was outside of our clique. Look at that again in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Why is John so worked up about this demon exorcist? Three thoughts. One, John is one of the so-called sons of thunder. He and his brother James, that's their nickname. Passages like this give us a little window into how he and his brother James probably got that nickname. This is kind of their thing, to call down the thunder on people, so to speak. You ever notice, though, that Jesus, he often calls sons of thunder types to be his disciples. He seems to see something in them, maybe a passion that he loves to take and then redirect. Here's the thing, though. Jesus, he doesn't leave sons of thunder as sons of thunder, does he? John, for example, will later become known as the disciple of love. Second thought about why John's so worked up. This whole casting out demons thing is a bit sensitive at the moment. Remember last week, right? The disciples literally just got done failing at this. Demon possessing a child, the disciples couldn't cast it out. Now this dude over here that they don't even know is casting out demons successfully in Jesus' name. You have to imagine that's a hit to their pride. This guy's engaged in what was supposed to make us special. Third, about why John maybe is so worked up about this. Notice the language John uses. Verse 38. He doesn't say, we tried to stop him because he was not following you, Jesus. What's he say? We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Right? John reveals maybe more than he means to here about his attitude. We see that John's approaching this like, hey, if someone wants to follow you, Jesus... They need to go through us. We've done the hard work. We've paid the price. So if anyone's going to reap the benefits, it should be us and those we authorize. So John and the other disciples, they try to stop this guy. You know, remember, this is sequential. Jesus just got done talking about welcoming and receiving in his name. In my name, he says. Seemingly, that reminds John of somebody who's doing spiritual work in Jesus' name. But instead of welcoming and receiving the guy, to use the language of verse 37, the disciples apparently said something to this guy like, 
excuse me, sir, what gives you the right to be doing this? Do you even know Jesus? Please keep his name out of your mouth. Of course, it says they tried to stop him in verse 38, which might imply that the disciples were unsuccessful in stopping him. It might have been like when Sarah and I tried to get our upstairs apartment neighbor to stop stomping on her floor at 3 a.m. each night while we had a newborn we were trying to keep asleep. Uh, she did not appreciate being asked to change her behavior. Uh, there's no indication that this guy deferred to the disciples' authority to shut him down either. And from our vantage point, I don't know. I mean, maybe it seems kind of petty to us for the disciples to even try to shut this guy down. Right? This gets me thinking, though. What if I do the same? Whom do I try to shut down like this because they're not in my camp, so to speak? Reflect on that with me for a second. I think about Roman Catholics who have real faith. We could partner with them. We should partner with them. I think, for example, about how many examples there are in the Catholic Church of people who are celibate, who, but who can testify to celibacy not being a death sentence. That's an important voice in our world today. Yet, we won't listen to them or partner with them on anything because, yikes, Catholic. I think about charismatic and Pentecostal believers around the world, seeing God's spirit move in incredible ways, seeing legitimate miracles, yet we're like, mm, it seems a little risky to say anything positive about them. I think about churches in this area with female pastors and elders uh, who are really preaching the word and seeing people formed into the image of Christ, yet some of us shift in our seats a little bit when we hear someone pray for those churches because why are we praying for that kind of church? That's not how we do it here. But the last few years, this tribe mentality, for lack of a better word, has really gotten out of hand, even beyond what I just mentioned. Set aside Catholics and Pentecostals for a moment. Let's just take evangelicalism, okay? Now, within evangelicalism, so not Catholic, not charismatic, not orthodox, let's just talk about what I'd call reformed evangelicalism, maybe broadly speaking. So, uh, meaning that not seeker, feel-good, mega-church, but looking to Scripture as the ultimate authority. So we're a pretty thin sliver here of Christians. Now, within that, within that Reformed evangelicalism, let's just talk about complementarian Reformed evangelicalism, okay? That's that the two genders complement one another and some roles are reserved for each, okay? We've gotten very, very narrow, right? You with me? So, uh, within that group, we're talking about an extremely narrow subset of all the Christians around the world. And within that group, so narrow that all of us in that sliver share approximately 99.9% .9 theological agreement. There's been an eruption of Mark 9.38 all over again. Within the group saying, look at that guy over there. Sure, he's technically in our little sliver of the Christian world, but we need to stop him. Because even though he's doing stuff in the name of Jesus, he's not filling in the blank. He's not supporting and upholding the political causes we think he should. He's not handling masks and vaccines and navigating the pandemic the way we think he should. He's not publicly disavowing and distancing himself from Christians that we disavow and distance ourselves from. He's too cozy with those people. Stop him. You know what I mean? These last few years... We've seen a proliferation of self-appointed police within our already narrow sliver of the Christian tradition. 
who are pointing the finger and pulling into Mark 9.38, saying, you're not following us, so you don't have the right to be doing work in the name of Jesus. And sadly, there are all too many of us church people who are happy to pick up our pitchforks and torches to follow these YouTube pastors and discernment bloggers as they march to break down the proverbial doors of people who might be a little off in some ways, but who are genuinely doing good work in the name of Jesus. Anybody? I'm the first to admit, I've picked up my pitchfork before to join the mob. In fact, if you had to draw, a car if we hired a cartoonist to draw, observe my years, 20 ages 22 to 30 of my life and draw a picture of it, I think that might be the most accurate picture is me with a pitchfork thinking I'm right about everything and I'm going to be on a mission to shut down all these people who are doing it wrong. Sadly, that's who I was. That's who I still am to an extent. That impulse isn't new, though. It's what the disciples' instinct was in Mark 9. If there seems to be good being done outside our clique, we need to shut it down or at least discredit it. Because if Jesus could be at work outside our clique, where would that leave us? You received an index card on the way in. I'm going to be inviting you this morning to write on that card privately for your eyes only. Maybe the name of a fellow professing Christian that you've judged too harshly, that you've too quickly written off because they weren't in your theological or political or ecclesial clique, so to speak. Feel free to do that at any time during the sermon or don't. But I think it's critical that we think of this scripture text not just in the abstract but in concrete terms with concrete humans in our lives that we're thinking about. That's John's report. Let's see Jesus' response. Verse 39, we're going to see that he says, don't stop someone just because they're outside the clique. Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him. Do not stop him. We can't be sure what John expected to hear from Jesus here. Last chapter's difficult words from Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That might have led John to expect Jesus would appreciate John drawing a hard line in the sand. Who knows? But if John was expecting affirmation from Jesus, he gets the opposite. Not only does Jesus say, don't stop him, Jesus effectively says, you stop what you're doing, John. You're the one who's the problem here. We're going to see three reasons in a moment why Jesus wants John to cease and desist. Uh, but for now, I just want us to return to that index card again, actually. Sit and just reflect for a moment and seek the Lord on this. Who is that person in my life? or in my circles. I want to make space for us all to hear Jesus' voice. Maybe saying something like, the church doesn't belong to you. Don't try to stop him. Or something like, your expression of Christianity is not the only expression of Christianity. Do not stop her. Who's that person or group for you? few caveats are in order for the sake of clarity. There are false teachers. There are real enemies to the gospel. This passage is not talking about them. Right? Not everybody who names the name of Jesus should be automatically applauded just because they attach Jesus to what they're doing. Right? Not to be morbid, but there are serial killers who think they're doing God's work. They're deluded. Right? So there's a line to be drawn somewhere. 
follow me here, that line has to be drawn in such a way that true heretics, using the correct definition of that old school term, right? True heretics are on the wrong side of the line. And this guy here casting out demons is on the good side of the line. And when I read this passage, and I think about the persistent cluelessness of even the 12 people who have been spending every day with Jesus for multiple years at this point, and then I try to imagine this other guy who hasn't had the benefit of spending all that time with Jesus, I can't help but think that if we sat down to talk with this guy who's casting out the demons, we'd have some serious differences with him on theology, politics, ethics, everything. He hasn't even spent much time with Jesus. Yet, according to Jesus, he's on the right side of the line, so to speak, such that the command to this guy, for, uh, with regards to this guy, is don't stop him. That's why I used Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, egalitarians as examples earlier. Let me be clear, I'm not Roman Catholic for a reason. I wish my Catholic friends uh, wouldn't uh, pray to Mary. I don't pray to Mary. I teach the sacraments the way they do. I don't do that or assign good works such a role in salvation. I do disagree on those things. I think they're errors, personally, as they think my theology is an error. I'm not Pentecostal for a reason. I wish my Pentecostal friends would see that baptism of the Spirit is something that happens at the moment of conversion, biblically, that there aren't two tiers of Christians, some with the Holy Spirit and some without the Holy Spirit. I wish they wouldn't elevate the sign gifts the way they sometimes do. I think those are errors, as they think I'm an error. I'm not egalitarian for a reason, if that term means anything to you. I think the Bible teaches that headship in the church and home is reserved for men. And I think my egalitarian friends are getting that one wrong and missing out as a result. I think it's an error. I'm not trying to minimize these errors in any way. All I'm saying is that when you and I see these folks doing work in the name of Jesus, this passage ought to inform how we treat them. We can try to shut down their work, discourage them, at least ignore them, speak about them exclusively using language of concern. We can do that. Or we can try to help them, encourage them, pray for them, cheer for them. We can speak about them using affectionate language and then privately express concerns maybe eventually on secondary matters when the time is right. Which is it going to be? If this random guy who somehow figured out that the name of Jesus is powerful enough to cast out demons is somebody we aren't supposed to shut down, then I just can't feel good about shutting down my friends and acquaintances who fall into those camps. That command of Jesus in verse 39, do not stop him, provides us with our big idea for the passage. No, wait, no need to wait any longer to name it. The big idea is this, don't oppose people who are working for Jesus. Don't oppose people who are working for Jesus. I like how one commentator said it. Jesus calls his disciples here to welcoming openness instead of protective exclusiveness. Welcoming openness instead of protective exclusiveness. Don't oppose people who are working for Jesus. Now, after Jesus gives that command, he gives three reasons for it. Three reasons not to stop someone just because they're outside the clique. Uh, you can see each of the three reasons is marked by the word for, F-O-R. Four, four, four. Okay. So first uh, reason, the success of the miracle is verification. Look again at verse 39. Jesus said, do not stop him for one who does, meaning completes, actually performs a mighty work in my name, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Uh, this is someone who's employed the name of Jesus, and the power of Jesus makes the miracle work. We should be slow to discount that, Jesus says. 
we could contrast that with a situation like the one in Acts 19, verses 13 to 16. You don't have to turn there, but uh, it might make a note of it. There you'll see that seven brothers come up with a plan. They say, we don't know Jesus, but it sounds like there's this cool trick we've heard about. If you just say the name Jesus, demons have to obey you and leave. Amazing. Let's try it. The problem is these brothers don't actually know Jesus for themselves. So instead of the demons obeying the brothers, one of the demons says, I know Jesus, but I don't know you, and overpowers the brothers and leaves them running out of the house naked and bleeding, the passage says. If this guy in Mark 9 would have been similarly just trying to use Jesus' name to do a cool trick, we could expect that Jesus' power would not have been present to perform this miracle. It wouldn't have worked, so to speak. But if someone's invoking the name of Jesus and seeing results, especially miraculous ones, that's not the kind of person that's going to turn around and speak evil of Jesus, Jesus says. Now, does that mean that everything they do has Jesus' stamp of approval? No. But it does mean that we should be very slow to write them off. Second reason not to stop someone just because they're outside the click. There are only two camps, and we are to give others the benefit of the doubt regarding which camp they are in. Look at verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. The one who's not against us is for us. There's lots of nuance in Jesus' teaching along the way, but when the situation's black and white, he's willing to be black and white. Against us, for us. To Jesus, there's no middle ground. Following from that, Jesus' instruction is this. If you can't determinely, or you can't conclusively determine that someone's against us, then treat them as though they're for us. If we weren't to give the benefit of the doubt like this, we might too quickly write somebody off who actually is for us. And to Jesus, that's not acceptable. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. So at this point, we've got a mixed field with weeds and wheat growing up together. What needs to be done? The servants asked him, do you want to go and pull the weeds up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. In other words, sure, there are some weeds out there, Jesus says. Maybe this guy who's casting out demons here will be shown one day to be a weed. Who knows? But you can't always tell in the moment, and that's kind of the point. So instead of pulling up what looks like a weed, only to find out that you accidentally pulled up a good stalk of wheat, leave them both till the end and let God sort it out. That's Jesus' approach to it. Uh, now, important note here, Jesus seems to say the opposite of this once. Luke eleven twenty three. here's a comparison of our verse from Mark 9, 40, and then Luke eleven twenty three. This isn't a mistake in copying because both of these show up in Luke's gospel. So Luke didn't see any contradiction in these, but they're both here. And on, on the surface, it looks like they're opposites. Luke eleven twenty three. it says, he who's not with me is against me. While in Mark 9, it's for the one who's not against us is for us. So which one is it? 
worded this way, it sounds like if you can't tell that someone's with me, if you're not sure they're with me, then they're against me. Or assume they're against me. But context here is everything. Jesus says both these things at different times to different people because he's offering different needed emphases to people who are prone to fall into different ditches, so to speak. So, the one who is prone to write other people off too quickly, okay, that sort of person, needs to hear, the one who's out there who's not against us is for us. Don't write them off too quickly, right? On the other hand, the person who's a little wishy-washy, wants to sit on the fence instead of taking a side or not, they're not quite sure they want to commit to Jesus, that person needs to consider if they're really with Jesus. And so Jesus shares with them as a filter for self-evaluation, the one who isn't with me is against me. In other words, think about yourself. Look in the mirror. Are you with me or not? If you're not actively with me, then you are against me. Both are true. In both cases, there is no middle ground. With him, against him. Jesus is helping people self-sort. With everyone being called to look in the mirror first and assume we're against him, unless we're actively for him, but then to turn our gaze to those around us who claim the name of Christ and assume that those people are with us unless it's clear that they're actually against us. Does that make sense? Do you and I give fellow professing Christians the benefit of the doubt? Third reason why not to write them off. God rewards even the smallest good deeds done for his children. Even the smallest, he rewards it. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He notices, even when you give somebody a cup of water because they're a Christian. If someone else has done that for you because you're a Christian, even if the giver of water is outside your camp, so to speak, God sees that too and will reward them for that. That's the third reason, not to stop someone just because they're outside the clique, but rather to actively seek to bless them, which will result in reward for us. So again, here's the big idea. Don't oppose people who are working for Jesus. Let's not oppose people who are working for Jesus. There are two sides, friends. The battle lines are being drawn, but we must not be too quick to put someone on the other side of the line. Here's what N.T. Wright says. The difference in attitude speaking of here in this passage, isn't just about being exclusive, John, or inclusive, Jesus. It's really about the difference between seeing Jesus' work as a private and privileged operation versus seeing it as an event that's moving swiftly towards a showdown. A showdown is coming, church. God will sort it all out at the proper time. But while we wait for that, let's not oppose people who are working for Jesus. The world around us is cannibalizing itself. The Christian world is following suit, sometimes leading the way. May we not take part in that, friends. We do have opponents. There are outsiders. It's just that this passage warns us to be very slow in making those calls. You get very careful as we draw those lines. Let's get rid of the influences that are pushing us to be hasty in writing people off. For example, if you receive emails from an individual or organization who wants to warn you every year about a new greatest threat the church has ever faced from within its ranks, unsubscribe from that email listserv. 
that ramped up rhetoric is just going to feed the tendency that exists in all of us to oppose fellow Christians because they're not in our camp. Let's remember that we are followers, not of a Savior who triumphed by beating people into submission, but rather who triumphed by suffering and laying his life down. He tells us he's gentle and lowly at heart. He gets crushed like a worm, not exalted like a king. That's why our power comes from his wormishness. To use the language of Psalm 22, and the psalmist says prefiguratively, I am a worm and not a man. Our power doesn't come from our combativeness. Jesus kept trying to tell his disciples the gospel of this wormishness, that he came to be crushed underfoot. They just didn't get it. What he's trying to tell them is that we humans deserved to be crushed like worms for our sin. But instead, we lashed out like snakes. And so instead, he became that worm so that we could go free. Maybe you've never heard that. And it's refreshing to you that there's a possibility you could win by losing. Maybe Jesus' words are like cool water to your parched soul when you realize that he says, come all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Any of us would love to talk to you about starting a relationship with the one who would die in your place. As you answer that call and come to him, this passage reminds us that not to think that we have to fit some cookie-cutter mold. If you're new to North Sub, I want to make sure you hear this. The members of this congregation, the leadership of this congregation, we aren't even on the same page regarding every theological or political issue. As such, this will not be the place, at least I pray that it won't be the place, where you're going to get crushed for your stance on some minor secondary issue while you're working for Jesus. How can we crush you while we're filled with awe and gratitude for the fact that we ourselves just escaped being crushed? That's what the gospel does. And it sinks in when we really get it. For those of us who do know Jesus, let's remember, every time we go on a social media rant crushing a fellow believer, we deny that gospel effectively. We deny it, that Jesus was crushed in our place. Let's not be so self-important that we drown out Jesus' words with his, about his death with our own trumpet blasts regarding who's in and who's out of God's people. Heavenly Father, I repent. I turn from my sin. I ask your forgiveness for the many, many times when I've been too quick to pick up my torch and go on a crusade against someone else who professes the name of Christ but doesn't live that out the way I think they should. Even if I've been right about the issues, God, I've been too hasty to condemn, um, too slow to support and encourage others who are doing good work in your name. Remake me into a person who loves others, shows that sort of charity to others, and make us increasingly into a church that does the same. In Jesus' name, amen. I invited you earlier to write on your index card. Whatever you write on that is fine. But here's a suggestion if you haven't written yet. 
maybe you could use a, a template, something like this. You could write, I've held judgment against such and such an individual, name them, for whatever it is, for their stance on this or that, for their doing this differently than I think they should. But now I'm letting that go. I've held judgment against this person, and now I'm letting that go. There are four kneelers around the sides of the worship center, two in the front here and two in the back. Each of those this morning has a box next to it with a slit in the top. Whatever you put in that box this morning will be disposed of without even being read by anyone. But during these last two songs, we want to give you a chance to go to the kneelers if you want to. To kneel and pray, to do some work with God, and then drop your card in there to symbolize that you're letting go of your exclusionary judgment of another Christian who's doing work in God's name. Once again, that opportunity will be available to you during the duration of these last two songs. <laughs>